Welcome to episode 9 of Literary Disco, the Tiny Beautiful Things episode. This week, we will do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelf to discuss. And then we will talk about Cheryl Strayed's collection of essays from the Dear Sugar Advice column, Tiny Beautiful Things. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. Todd, you're going first on the bookshelf revisit. So, uh, today... Um is sort of a dark day. Uh, today is the morning that we all woke up and found out that a guy had gone into a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado and killed a bunch of people. Um, so I've been awake since this morning watching the news. Um, and I can't help but think all morning long while I've been watching the, these news reports about um, Columbine and by extension, the brilliant, magnificent, amazing book of the same name by Dave Cullen. Um, so I'm, I'm always fascinated by what I sort of consider commonplace evil, um, the mm -hmm. kinds of people who just walk into a place and kill a bunch of people that don't exist on the radar, people that, um, you know, that they're saying this guy's only uh, intersection with the law previously was a speeding ticket. Um, so I'm always fascinated by what makes people snap, um, what makes people do terrible things. Um, and if you want to read a exhaustive look into what made two young men do that, you have to read Dave Cullen's book, Columbine, particularly if you think you know what happened at Columbine. Because what Dave has shown in his book, and he spent 10 years researching Columbine, is that everything you think you know about Columbine, everything you learned in those first couple days, uh, the trench coat mafia and that these kids were bullied and all that stuff, that none of it is true. Um, and so it's, it's a fascinating look into, um, into young people killing other people, of course, but also a fascinating look into the mythology that surrounds these sorts of horrific events. Right. Um, the most you know, shocking discovery for me, apart from what made these two young men kill a bunch of people, um, concerns, and I won't give away the, novel, the, the book because you should read it, concerns the young woman who the media reports said I believe in God, basically, mm -hmm. when um, she was shot by, I don't remember which one shot her. Um, there's a fascinating story around that girl and around that entire um, market that grew up around this young woman, around what she uh, supposedly said to the shooters, and then the truth of the story. Um, it's, it's one of the single best works of investigative reporting I've ever read. I couldn't agree more, man. It is such Me a good too. book. Yeah, it, I loved it. It's remarkable. We should say this is one of our big, like, I mean, I, this is one of the first books I remember all three of us reading and talking about. Um, and Dave Cullen himself is a pretty fascinating guy. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he followed Columbine for 10 years. He, he interviewed everybody, everybody. Um, and he was and, at the scene on that day. That's one of the yeah. neat parts of the story is it was... A reporter there. Uh, one of the things I love about the book is that it starts at the moment when the story gets decided upon and right. spins outward. Right. So it's great that he was there too to see that moment. But go on, yeah. Todd. Sorry. Um, well, and he's got a new book that he's working on now on gays in the military, which I can't wait to see. But knowing how he writes, and um, actually, in fact, those of you who are interested, if you if you go onto YouTube and um, and Google Dave Cullen and his uh, process there is uh there are two videos that were shot at the mfa program that i direct um where he is being interviewed by david ulin about 
how he wrote Columbine, the process by which he decided how to put all the different stories together. And they're like, it's hmm. like 20 minutes of video. It's absolutely fascinating. So for those of you guys that are listening out there, um, you do yourself a favor and, and pick the book up. You can get it anywhere these days. Uh, they, they, they sell it at Costco. Um, because it, it will really inform your ideas of what, how things like this happen. And, and most of the time, things like this or things like that shooting at Virginia Tech, things like that, there is no why, you know? Um, most of the time, it's just fucked up people doing fucked up things. It's really interesting to see what will happen with this shooting from today because it's just such, it's such an easy grab for so many issues. Mm-hmm. Movies, yeah. violence in the media, and, oh, God, the, like, last big American pastime going to the movies. Oh, God, <laughs> it's going to be, it's, there's going to be so much issue writing around this, you know, and I think it will be very healthy to look back on historically similar events and think about mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, all right, so for my bookshelf revisit, um, I'm going to pull a Todd and uh, discuss a movie. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with the movie. Uh, no, the, I, I finally saw the trailer for the film adaptation of On the Road that's coming out uh-huh. and uh, Jack Kerouac's book On the Road. And this is one of those films that basically the, the rights to the book were optioned the moment the book was published and became this you know generation-defining book. And it's never been made. It's been passed along from director to director and... I think the biggest was like Coppola was going to do it years ago with Brad Pitt starring or Johnny Depp or I don't know. It's been and so they finally actually shot it. Walter Sales directed it. The actors I don't I don't really know. Uh, the only one uh, Kristen Stewart from Twilight is in it. Um, oh, I hope she bites God her lip a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was so excited about your revisit until that <laughs> exact second. I know. <laughs> I watched the trailer. It's not. It doesn't look horrible. It actually looks pretty cool. So wait, um, this isn't the one with James Franco in it. Didn't James Franco no. just do a Jack Kerouac thing? No, James Franco did an Alan Ginsberg film about the Howl. Oh, Howl. Files. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. okay. Uh, which I didn't see either. I have a hard time with a lot of the Beat Generation film stuff. I feel like you know it often becomes an opportunity to play dress up and and it's just a weird. I just don't know if it really translates to film as well. And also, it's become such a. It was such a huge cultural movement. Um, that I, like, my biggest problem with the idea of adapting On the Road is that most people are going to try and adapt the story of Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, which On the Road is not. On the Road Mm -hmm. is a novel by Jack Kerouac, and he created characters. And to treat it as a work of fiction, I would, you know, and watching the trailer for the movie, it doesn't seem like they do that. They have shots of, you know, the character writing on a one long scroll, which is what Jack Kerouac did, not his character in the book. You know, so it's all Mm -hmm. very sort of self-conscious beat generation stuff. But anyway, uh, I actually thought the movie doesn't look horrible. It looks fine. But I wanted to um, play something that I've always loved since I was a teenager, which is uh, uh, Jack Kerouac was on the Steve Allen show when On the Road really took off. And... um, you know, I'm I'm a huge Kerouac fan. I, I definitely discovered him at the age when you're supposed to discover him at like fourteen or fifteen. And I went through my obsessive reading everything the guy had written and, you know, doing my own road trips and whatever. But um I then sort of rejected the beat generation in general for a long time once I started studying literature seriously in college until uh at Columbia, um one of my professors did like a beat seminar and 
you know, it was really appropriate because uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac met at Columbia. And so it's really, it was really an amazing class to be doing this small group seminar with only, I think there was like eight of us in the class, and we talking about places that we know around the campus and the stories of how this literary movement started. And at that point, when I was sort of at the end of my, of my literary education, to reappreciate the beats and to rediscover what it is that actually made Kerouac amazing. And um, so now I've sort of all, you know, come back around and I really do truly love the beats. And if you want to read like just a short book that's not On the Road, because I actually think On the Road is one of the least interesting of all the beat generation works, I would pick up The Subterraneans by Kerouac. It's brilliant. It'll take you a day to read. I've read it maybe five times. I love this book so much. And it's the ultimate example of his crazy prose style that influenced so many writers and still is influencing a lot of writers. But I wanted to play this thing. He, you know, Kerouac was notoriously shy and awful at public appearances, and he was a drunk. So by the time he became famous, he had already written most of the novels that then came out. He had spent most of his 20s and early 30s writing all these books, nobody publishing them, and then On the Road took off, and he appeared on the Steve Allen show, and Steve Allen would play piano and let Kerouac read his poems. Mm. And this is a collection. This is a clip of Kerouac reading the last page of On the Road, um, and it, I just, you know, it's one of those things like you turn off the lights and listen to, it's beautiful and really kind of sad. Um, the reference to Dean Moriarty, Dean Moriarty is the main character that, that Kerouac's character is following around throughout the book when they crisscross the country. The sort of meta story is that they always think they're going to run into Dean's father because Dean's father was essentially a hobo that disappeared years before. And, and so they always think while they're driving across the country and hanging out in these scummy bars and uh, streets late at night, they always think they're going to run into Dean's father. That's sort of this ongoing thing. So just that's a little bit of context. A lot of people have asked me why did I write that book or any book. All the stories I wrote were true, because I believed in what I saw. I was traveling west one time at the junction of the state line of Colorado, its arid western one, and the state line of poor Utah. I saw in the clouds huge and massed above the fiery golden desert of Evenfall, the great image of God with forefinger pointed straight at me through halos and rolls and gold folds that were like the existence of a gleaming spear in his right hand which saith, come on boy, go thou across the ground. Go moan for man. Go moan, go groan. Go groan alone. Go roll your bones alone. Go thou and be little beneath my sight. Go thou and be minute as seed in the pod. Go thou, go thou, die hence. And of this world report you well and truly. Anyway, I wrote the book because we're all gonna die. In the loneliness of my life, my father dead, my brother dead, my mother far away, my sister and my wife far away. Nothing here but my own tragic hands that once were guarded by a world of sweet attention, that now are left to guide and disappear their own way into the common dark of all our death. Sleeping in me raw bed alone and stupid, with just this one pride and consolation, my heart broke in the general despair and opened up inwards to the Lord. I made a supplication in this dream. So in the last page of On the Road, I describe how the hero, Dean Moriarty's come to see me all the way from the West Coast just for a day or two. We've just been back and forth across the country several times in cars and now our adventures are over. 
We're still great friends, but we have to go into later phases of our lives. So there he goes, Dean Moriarty, ragged in the moth-eaten overcoat he brought specially for the freezing temperatures of the East. Walking off alone, and last I saw him, he rounded the corner of 7th Avenue, eyes on the street ahead, and bent to it again. Gone. So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast, and all that road going, and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it. In Iowa, I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out, and don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. <laughs> Ah, it's good stuff. It's one of the saddest, and I mean, what's cool about it to me is to also hear his rhythms, um, mm -hmm. because that's, you know, he was mm -hmm. always obsessed with jazz music and, you know, bop music, bop jazz, and you can hear that he's clearly writing with a, a very specific rhythm to the way, you know, and and I think that um, hearing that, like when I first heard that as a teenager, even after I had read On the Road probably a couple times at that point, um, I remember being a little weirded out by those rhythms and like not quite understanding why and but now they make so much sense to me um and i can't read anything that kerouac has written without hearing that voice in my head that's so funny i never i read him just like you writer when i was maybe 16 like exactly correct <laughs> uh and uh um i've never heard his voice before and in my I've just never thought to look it up. And in my reading, it was always so much more rushed. Yeah. You know, I still rhythmic, of course, but more of like just a huge river of mm -hmm. words flying at your right. face. Because otherwise, I find it kind of hard to read. I mean, it's been a long time, but it's more fun, I think, to read it fast and let the words wash over you. I was the exact same really, way. That completely changes I, I've it. I've never heard him read before either. And I read, I read On the Road when I was 16. Um, right, and I didn't. I, I, I don't profess to have. Is a, it required? I think it must be. <laughs> it is. I mean, you it, turn sixteen and they hand you on the road and your driver's license. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't. I don't profess to have a huge fondness for the Beats. Um, perhaps because I read it when I was sixteen. You know, I, I remember reading Howl for the first time in college, um, and not. You know, it, it it didn't it didn't hit me as something important for me i th yeah for me how is the least interesting of alan ginsburg's poems too like if you read his other poetry mm -hmm. like his poem america mm -hmm. which is wonderful it's funny I and like sad yeah. sunflower sutra i mean he has so many great yes, poems and you know um kerouac the, the the thing that really made me appreciate kerouac was when you uh when you read his his list of rules for spontaneous bop prosody, mm -hmm. which is these like lists of 10 rules that he created that was a manifesto of how to write. And it was things like, you know, first thought is your best thought, go with it. And basically his theory of writing was 
you prepare, you work really hard, you take lots of notes, and you really um, structure as much as you can, and then you sit down and you do it the way a jazz improviser improvises, where you're playing your instrument, but you gotta just go with it, and you just gotta feel the language where it goes. And obviously that, when you have not that much talent, that can turn into dribble. <laughs> but luckily, Ginsburg, you know, Ginsburg wrote Hal with Kerouac's rules for spontaneous bop prosody on his typewriter. And so what I came to realize is that even though Ginsburg is a much better writer than Kerouac and much smarter and more interesting and has better things to say, I think, Kerouac really is the one who started this movement. And, um, you know, his books are basically thinly veiled biography, uh, but there is where he creates fiction, it's really, really smartly done. Um, it's just, unfortunately, he was an alcoholic. The thing is that my experience with the Beats is that um, when I read them, I guess as a younger man, like when I was in college, this I guess so would be the second time I read them, is that I found it precious that they were trying to create this uh, emotion through the, the choices that they were making. And maybe it's just, yeah. you know, may, maybe that's just how would I, I, I don't like the way tomatoes taste either, you know? So it might just be that I don't like the way the Yeah, because, taste. I mean, I, I know what you're saying, and uh, but I also wonder, like, well why not have an American romantic movement? I mean, that's what you're describing, a romantic mm. movement. And, like, I don't mind the idea that in the middle of the 20th century we had this sort of romantic, you know... I, I think it was nice that they were that ambitious. I think that it's it's really easy to write them off, just like it's easy to write off anybody that's self-consciously trying to create great literature and saying, we're creating great literature. Mm -hmm. um, but... I, I mean, that's the thing, is that when you look at the prose experiments that Kerouac actually did accomplish, um, he did a lot, you know, and, and just his sentences alone sometimes are strikingly brilliant. And um, I know it's, 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 the problem is we've been marketed the, this idea of them that I think is just, you know, at this point, it's such a, they're a pop culture reference. Right. You know, the beats became pop culture, and that's too bad, because at its heart, it was a really earnest, wonderful literary movement that was a small group of people, and, you know, there was a definite need for a lot of the things that they accomplished. I think of the beats as, <laughs> the beat generation as, like, the teenagers of American history eras, you know, like, self-absorbed, not really... You know, I've never thought of them as connected to things before or since, and hmm. I, I have to That's say, I point. love, I love um, uh, Mad Men. Well, I love it in general, like most people. But one of the things that I that first really drew me to the show is the first season takes place at the end of the Beat Generation, mm -hmm. and it ties it into the, you know, the transition into the next era when everyone else is basically like, "What are you idiots?" What are you doing? <laughs> and to see that, you know, to see them placed in history as coming from something and leading to something is just really interesting. And I, I would like to revisit them with that in mind. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, that's, I mean, in this beat course, that's what we did. We had to study jazz and we had to study, like, sort of the history of masculinity, too. Like, in post-World War II, mm -hmm. it's a really weird, it's so hard for us post the 60s and 70s to remember mm -hmm. that like being different in the 40s was insane you know right. like if you were not if you didn't have a job 
you were crazy. You were if you were a, a man and didn't have a job, and and then to, to actively choose to just travel for no reason, like, that was weird, you know? Like, unless you were rich yeah. and you could go on vacation, but to hitchhike across the country is insanity. Like, you were risking death, and then you were also just a hobo, like you were saying, but Todd. But it's that not that is, different from today. I mean, I, I just... I think I talked about this recently somewhere else with you guys, maybe, but I just saw Into the Wild again and just read yeah. it again. You did. And, you know, they treated that kid like he was absolutely, and he may have been out of his mind, but it's the same thing. I mean, he basically went on a walkabout, a vision quest, and people were like, you're right. nuts, you're crazy. And as right. it turned out, he was. He ended up dying alone in a bus in Alaska. So mm. that's what... And everybody got to be right. And that's what the beats got you, is that guy dead in a bus. <laughs> I hope you're happy, Jack Kerouac. I think of your mother. Anyone? Anyone? 10,000 Maniacs? <laughs> um, I'll be super fast. So I was recommended uh, this book, uh, The Boys of My Youth, by Joanne Beard. Have you read this? No. no. Someone sent this to me because she thought that my writing style was similar to uh, Joanne Beard's, and I, I just completely fell in love with this book. I highly recommend it. It's the kind of book of essays that... Um, has complete control over what nonfiction can do and when it can be true and not true and how you express that. So I'll just read a little bit of the beginning. Here's a scene. Two sisters are fishing together in a flat bottom boat on an olive green lake. They sit slumped like men facing in opposite directions, drinking coffee out of a metal sided thermos, smoking intently. I'm going to skip a little and then my cousin and I are floating in separate saline oceans. I'm the size of a cocktail shrimp, and she's the size of a man's thumb. My mother is the one on the left wearing baggy gabardine trousers and a man's shirt. So she's inventing these scenes uh, or recalling them from her mother's memories. I don't know. But this the essay, which is called Cousins, is so beautifully done that you allow that it's not a pure memoir. And I always like writing that does that, that says, hey, this is nonfiction, but in order for us all to get on the same emotional page here, I'm going to invent a little bit and come in and out of these inventions. And it's just an amazing thing that breaks through the limits of your own lifetime, but is still an essay completely about herself and her cousin. So it's Cousins is the name of the essay that I particularly love. And the, the book is The Boys in My Youth by Joanne Beard. Awesome. Interesting. It's really good. Hey, let me ask you a question, yeah. Julia. Um, because yeah, you, you brought it up about the factuality of nonfiction. Have you read uh, oh, about just another brief interlude? This will be quick. Um, have you read about a mountain by John Degada? Um, yeah, is that the Vegas yes. one? And then the fact-checking book yes. came out of it. Yes. yes, I would like to maybe read that for this pod podcast because the fact-checking book. Because I actually read the essay in Creative Nonfiction when it came out, and I loved it. I was insane for it, and I would tell people about it all the time. I came across it, it before anyone knew about it. You have to and tell then... me what this is, because I don't know. It's What's a book. The story? About a Mountain is a book by John Degada that came out two years ago, or three years ago, um, about a suicide in Las Vegas, and about the history, and then it also folds in a lot of sort of the history of Las Vegas, and about the this fight over um, this mountain where they wanted to bury a bunch of nuclear waste, and all sorts of stuff. Oh, interesting. I didn't know his whole book. I just read, it must have been an excerpt. Yeah. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, astoundingly beautifully written. And um, one of those works of nonfiction that's just so powerful that you're like thinking the whole time, like, I can't believe this is true. I can't believe this is true. And then a book came out last year uh, 
that's the that is his book, uh, but it also has printed in the side his fact checkers comments and then his responses to the fact checkers comments. So certain details were, of course, you know, of course, manipulated or implied that weren't necessarily true. And it's about fact checking and, you know, where is truth in nonfiction? I want to read it, but I, I loved the essay so much that I have not yet been emotionally prepared to destroy it. Is for he, myself. did he publish the fact checking book then? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he, he did it as a sort of exercise to show. Well, what they, was yes. they did it together. Fictional? The, the, they did the together. author, John Degada and the fact checker, whose name I, I cannot recall, unfortunately, they put it all together because they had, it was like, well, first of all, the, the essays that were originally were going to appear in the Atlantic, if, if memory serves me correct, or Harper's. Um, and then they actually ended up, I believe, in The Believer or McSweeney's or something like that. Um, oh. I think that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, maybe it's The Believer. I think it was The Believer. That's where I read it. Um, and, that's right. And so it's this whole series of fact-checking that went on for years over the, these, uh, the, the stuff that John the God had written. And then it became the book about a mountain that came out, uh, I think, two years ago. Um, so the book is remarkable. It's a fantastic book. And the fascinating thing about the fact-checking and about the truth in nonfiction, and this is a conversation for a, a different day, obviously, but it goes back to what Julia was talking about, is that sometimes John Degada would manipulate the truth of mundane things just because he liked the way it sounded. Um, so, for instance... Mm -hmm. Lyrically. Yeah, so, for instance, there were... You know, he says there are 34 strip clubs in Las Vegas, but really there were 32 or 33 or something like that. But he says... In the fact-checking book, I like the way 34 sounds better you know, in this sentence. It works better in Crazy. this sentence. So right. it's a really fascinating look into the, the limits and the depths of, of truth in nonfiction. But the book itself is about the limits and the effects of truth in life also. So there's some fascinating arguments to go along with that. I mean, and then, it, you know, it's sort of the thinking about the sort of dovetails into... Um, uh, David Shields, uh, what's it called? Um, Reality Hunger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Reality Hunger. I hate David Shields. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of him either. Well, um, I think we should definitely have this conversation another time, and I do want to read that um, John Daggett book. You should. And John Degada's yeah. book also. So basically... John, I really want to read that John Degada So basically book. from this bookshelf revisit, we should do a beat book so we can all talk about the beat generation. Uh. And we should... Uh, we'll pick something good. We'll do like Big Sur, you know, right. something that's more interesting and in, in later. Uh, and then we should do this uh, Delgado book. Yeah, I agree. And talk a lot more. And the Degada book also, you fucks. <laughs> Listen, we're... I feel like I experience most things in print and so mispronounce, you know, right. tons of words. I thought that your talk with Joan Dadion, however, was fantastic. <laughs> I'm sorry. She's a legend. Joan Dadion, American legend. <laughs> All right, stick around when we discuss Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things next. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, this is Julia here with Ryder and Todd. Hi, guys. What up? Hello. Hello. 
Okay. All right. Uh, always with the sexy highs. Some things you can't unlearn, Julia. And for Ryder, it's the sexy hello. Hello. <laughs> so today we are going to be talking about um, a book called Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar by Cheryl Strayed. Uh, we were just saying right before we started recording that uh, Cheryl Strayed has also just come out with a nonfiction book called Wild about hiking the Pacific Coast Trail after her mother died. And uh, both books are kind of coming out at the same time. We should say about Tiny Beautiful Things that it is not um, its not brand new work. Uh, most of these essays have been collected on the website The Rumpus, and they were originally formed as an advice column called Dear Sugar, which was anonymous, and Cheryl Strayed was herself anonymous um, as Dear Sugar until Valentine's Day of 2012. So she's only recently come out as the writer of these columns, and now they are a book. The interesting thing about about Dear Sugar is that, uh, at least in the um, the small world of authors, everyone knew it was Cheryl Strayed, but seemingly no reader knew. Um, if you'd ever read any Cheryl Strayed stuff, it was obvious that she was Sugar. Well, here's the thing about that. Uh, I mean, I guess I was, I didn't have any emotion when I found out who it was because Cheryl Strayed to me is not, you know, a known entity, Mm -hmm. but Dear Sugar very much is. When I first heard about this, um, it was about a year ago and it was graduation speech time and our, three of us, our mutual friend Sheena put up one of the columns, which was the uh, graduation advice, which we may talk about later. Um, and I sat down and I read it because I was fucking around on the internet and I read this column and I was like, Oh, let me read the last one. Okay. Oh, that was good. Let me read the last one. I was pinned to my couch. I lost an entire evening in a way I have rarely done reading these columns. And so she, to me, seemed a very real presence. Whereas Cheryl strayed, you know, she'd written one novel torched and I guess she's known amongst other writers, but until you know, until this moment in her life where her novel and these columns are coming out under her name, you know, wasn't a famous writer at all. She was more of a, you know, working, just starting out writer. Now she's famous. She's now, of course, because Oprah just selected her book, now she's going to be, yeah. you know, she's going to be well-known, which is great, because you know what? If there's one person who deserves it, it's Cheryl Strayed. She is a just a remarkable writer who, you know, through her column, and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll talk about several of these columns. But, you know, she, she reveals so much about herself and so much about what it means to grieve both for loss and for yourself, but also mm-hmm. on how to heal. Um, that, you know, she might as well also have a Ph.D. in psychology. I mean, she mm-hmm. really gets to the heart of people's issues. And she does it in a very strange way, which is that she gets to the heart of people's issues by saying, you know what? You're not alone. You think you've suffered? I've suffered. Um, which maybe right. isn't how you know most psychologists work, but it's a really great object lesson. I, there's a, a wonderful um, piece in here where a letter writer sent in a letter that basically said, you know, what the fuck I, oh, about the world? So what the fuck? And her response, you know, begins with her saying, when I was five years old, my grandfather made me jack him off, basically. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and that, and she concludes by saying, "The world is the fuck." And I just thought, man. No, no, no. Can I quote it exactly? <laughs> yes. Because yeah. this is it's this so is beautiful. the one. 
this is the one that absolutely, you know, held me down, basically. And I've thought about it all the time in sort of, a, like, an embarrassing way for an online advice column. <laughs> she finds a great balance between, you know, writing lucidly and modernly and also sometimes just casting off the modern bullshit questions that people are asking. Yeah, so it's it's this kind of a snarky letter that the guy writes. Exactly. It's like, what... It's WTF, WTF. I ask this every day, all the time. Yeah, and her response is one of the most beautiful things yeah. ever. It's like the greatest. And it's funny because it's... I love that the, the what the fuck question is put in the sort of internet acronyms of WTF. And yeah. then she answers through this internet advice column with the most earnest straightforward real life thing mm -hmm. that's yeah. to me is like it's like in this essay or i mean i call it an essay it's an essay yeah. call it an essay that's what it i is. mean it's really advice column yeah. is memoir you know yeah the most part. it's a memoir and you know she starts it off exactly like you said my father's father made me jack him off when i was three and four and five i wasn't any good at it my hands were too small and i couldn't get the rhythm right and i didn't understand what i was doing yeah which is, you think, is this a joke? What is this? But right. it's not. It's dead serious. And it's so weird in response to the WTF. And then, Julia, do you want to read the end? Yes. We, okay. So she, I won't give away what the essay is about, but she says, And the fuck is yours too, what the fuck? That question does not apply to everything every day. If it does, you're wasting your life. If it does, you're a lazy coward, and you are not a lazy coward. Ask better questions, sweet pea. The fuck is your life? Answer it. And you know what? Oh, just damn. hearing that again I just gave me chills. I just gave me chills. This is this is what I read when we when we first got this book because they actually quote that in the intro to the mm -hmm. book. And when I read that, I started crying. It was breakfast. I mean, yeah. you know, granted, I had just put my cat to sleep like oh. uh, like the week before, but I I was sitting there and this this line just killed me. And, like, I still, yeah. I get tears in my eyes when I read it. She's just one of those writers that she has a real sense of drama and ability to to just cut through bullshit and, like, perfectly tone and build to a great ending. Almost all of her letters end this well. Like, they always end with, like, a sentence that just takes your breath away. Can I tell you about the uh, the response that I cried in for the first time during the book? Yes. Sure. <laughs> and that this I is going to be our review. <laughs> Ones that, lines that we cried at. And, and I remember crying at this, reading it online, too. I'm sure I linked to it on my blog or on my Facebook or something. Um, it is the letter, How You Get Unstuck. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, that could also be the best one. <laughs> and it's about a young woman who uh, got pregnant. Um, and so, but that's not the important thing, <laughs> which sounds ter terrible. The important thing is that it's an essay about how uh, Cheryl worked um, basically at a, a middle, middle school for abused kids um, or at-risk kids and how the best thing that could happen to them was a job at Taco Bell or Walmart. Like, that's the best they could hope for. I mean, I won't spoil it, but it just ends on this... It was happy tears made me cry here because she runs into one of these kids that she helped, this kid who was getting just brutalized at home. And sure enough, this young woman has a job at Taco Bell. And the young woman says, I never forgot you, even after all these years, she told me. I'm so proud of you, I said, squeezing her shoulder. I made it, she said. Didn't I? You did, I said. You absolutely did. Oh, man. 
you know, yeah. lock me up and uh, <laughs> throw away the cleaner. Yeah, I can't believe that an advice column is this enthralling to read. You know, like, I kept turning the pages. Yeah. It was genuinely exciting. Like, I wasn't, um, I wasn't bored ever, um, you know, and she she manages to, you get a really great look at her and who she is, which is so funny that it was anonymous um, because I have such a clear picture of this woman and I know so much about her life and, you know, just the fact that her name was withheld made it technically anonymous. But the truth is she was burying her soul on the Internet for a year or whatever. You know, she she doesn't hold anything back. And I don't think she she hasn't started holding anything back since she revealed herself either. Yeah. Well, what what I was going to say is that um she wrote Wild first and I haven't read it yet because I'm so excited about it that I'm saving it. Um <laughs> I, I may be overly into this person, but, <laughs> um, well, no, she's just like, I love her writing style. And then it's a book about hiking, which is something that I love and it's nonfiction, which is what I write. So I'm very excited. But anyway, so from what I understand, that book is about her hiking after her mother's death. So I think it has a similar no holds barred viewed. I don't think her lack of holding back has anything to do with her anonymity. I think that's just how she writes and right. what she has to write about. You know, the thing about this book is you don't need to read it in order. You can jump around, mm-hmm. which I did in the uh, spirit of House of Pain. Um, and <laughs> you're welcome for that one, Ryder. I was hoping <laughs> someone would laugh <laughs> at it. I was hoping someone in the internet would laugh at my House of Pain joke. You can even start with the last essay in the book, which is the title essay, Tiny Beautiful Things where um, the, the person asking questions says, what would you tell your 20-something self if you could talk to her now? And it's, it's like the thesis of this entire book is contained in you know, what she would say to herself 20 years ago. When you begin to understand that the scars that she has are memories of endurance, basically, that she could not be this enlightened about the world had she not suffered so greatly, which, you know... It's a tough fucking road, man, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to be yeah. this great, you know? She actually develops a pretty... Uh, in a way, her response is almost standard to everything because um, she has a very clear philosophy, um, and it mm-hmm. isn't based on... I mean, she talks about how she has no actual therapy background and right. she's not a clinical psychologist or anything. It, it's, And she's not a social worker, even though she has volunteered it. Um, it's clear that she's sort of putting herself as a, uh, you know, an average person who has been wounded by life but has come through it and learned a lot and got something to share. And uh, the philosophy that that sort of emerges from it is really a, a positive affirmation that it's okay to feel pain and that mm-hmm. it's okay to have gone through something awful or have done something awful and that... Um, a lot of her essays boil down to kind of telling people to do what they already know to do or to mm-hmm. have confidence in themselves and to um, to just believe that they can get through this. There's there's a section where she talks about, uh, in response to someone's question about something, talks about how she wanted and desired the love of her father, who mm-hmm. was completely absent from her life. And this was another essay that made me cry. Um, and... You know, I sat there reading it by the pool today and um, your own tragic life, my own tragic life. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know what? 
<laughs> I, I can't imagine a better response or a, a better examination of how I felt when I was eight years old, wanting my father to, you know, to talk to me. He, you know, he didn't pay child support. We never saw him. My mother was crazy, all that good stuff. Um, but she, you know, it was clear that, you know, you want this person that you can never have to love you because you've never known what that person's love is like. And it just sort of hit me over the head. And I was like, well, shit, I could have saved a lot in co-pays if I just read this <laughs> sometime in the last 20 years. Yeah. She has yeah. a real clarity. She has this weird clarity that comes through. And it's it's a clarity of language, first and mm -hmm. foremost. Like, she has this, she has an ability to describe inner emotional states perfectly. And, um, like, she has this one in, the one in one of the earlier essays she responded to somebody and she says there is a middle path but it goes in only one direction toward the light your light the one that goes blink 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 inside your chest when you know what you're doing is right listen to it trust it let it make you stronger than you are and it's like just this idea of this blinking light in your chest but we all know what she's talking about it's a very abstract weird little you know and she just she consistently creates these images that describe an emotional state perfectly. She also, I think, is vaguely quoting the Neil Diamond song, Heartlight. Turn mm, on I your heartlight. So, Let no. it shine <laughs> wherever you are. Everybody well, knows. Let it make, don't interrupt me. Let it make a happy glow. Hey, for all the world to see. We're just going to wait. Yeah, we'll turn on your heartlight. <laughs> Oh, well, sorry about what that. I think her um, <laughs> her clearest takeaway is, I mean, there's a couple of essays in here about writing and mm. wanting to be a writer, um, but feeling paralyzed or feeling jealous of other people or whatever. And then also going back to the one, how you got unstuck about the girls who want to work at Taco Bell, ultimately. Um, I just love her message her ultimately very harsh message of you're responsible for your own life so go out there and do it you know like i'm not going to give you the answer well i'll give you something but you really need to i mean the line in how you get unstuck is here's how you get unstuck you don't just hold on you reach and that is like a life-changing that's a life-changing thought right you know of like you're always being told like yes you're a victim Hang on, hang on. No, yeah. don't hang on. Reach, move forward. And and uh, oh, there's one in one of the writing ones. Coal miners don't stand around talking about how hard coal mining is. Mm -hmm. They dig. Just got to start writing. <laughs> Stop talking about it. <laughs> Let me ask you guys this. So, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear how I've showed my hand here, but there's definitely elements of this. Well, A, the fact that it's an advice column. B, some of the lines that we've read out of context and C, the whole sweet pea honey bun thing. <laughs> it is definitely corny, but for some reason, <laughs> it just... We accept it. Every yeah. single one, like, removed my cynical response. I mean, I'm sure that there will be people listening to this hearing some of the lines that we read out like even now they rung in my ear strangely because they didn't have the correct you know build up and emotional manipulation for lack of a better word mm -hmm. to them so did you guys feel a cynical response at any time or yes. was it hard for you getting in i definitely had a hard time with the sh sweet pea honey bun mm -hmm. language like i just wish that they had cut all those lines out um but 
I think you're right that there there's a character of sugar that she right. she is sort of using this this voice. Here's an interesting thing. It didn't it bothered me when I started reading the book and then at one point um I wanted to share one of the essays with somebody and I found it online. And reading it online, I needed those like I I actually appreciated yeah. the sweet mm. pea huh. honey bun more. And I think it's because when we're reading a physical book, um you don't need the sort of irony ironizing distance that those words provide or like the Mm -hmm. the sort of cynical like jokey tone that you you kind of just want an earnest book and yet online I needed that little bit of a filter I needed a little sweet pea honey bun to give it more character to give it a little Mm -hmm. more like a wink you know to just give me a little nudge that like there is a real person somewhere writing this and um so I don't I think it really works online I don't think it works in the context of, the, of a book, which is just a weird difference. That is difference. so interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple times where she actually talks about, you know, talking about these letters to her husband in bed and how he goes to sleep and she stays awake thinking about it. And I was thinking about how how difficult it is that she has to take home some of this stuff. And you realize the amount of importance she gave on the responses to these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I, I, for some reason, I don't think Dear Abby was, you know, staying up late you know, worried about, you know, how to make a souffle in, in St. Paul or, or whomever was writing to Dear Abby. Um, that There's that emotional currency that goes along with things that she's saying. And I think that she writes so lucidly about this stuff because she actually cares about the people she's writing to. And she's also doing it, it should be noted, for free um, in these columns she's writing at the Rupp, but she wasn't being paid for them. Yeah. I am just in love with her. Me too. <laughs> uh you guys are creeping me out. <laughs> All right, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time at Literary Disco. And that's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss a young adult novel with an actual young adult librarian. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. This is Ryder Strong signing off for Todd Goldberg and Julia Castell. Thanks for joining us. It's all right.